Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Theology on Tap. Theology on Tap is a monthly gathering where young adults in the St. Louis area socialize and learn about topics relevant to Catholic young adults. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Theology on Tap podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. Prayer is an aspiration of the heart. It is a simple glance directed to heaven. It is a cry of gratitude and love in the midst of trial as well as joy. I think this quote describes my thoughts accurately and it's a good reminder for all of us around Thanksgiving. About 15 years ago, I got the news that statistically speaking, I had weeks to live. No one in the world had ever survived a relapse of my type of cancer following a stem cell transplant. And despite this, I frequently say that cancer is the best and worst thing that has ever happened to me. So people can understand the worst part, such as surgeries, relapses, chemotherapy and all the side effects, rumors flying, and death lingering in my shadow. The element that seems to puzzle, however, is the idea of a best part. So let me attempt to explain myself. The time that doctors told me I was going to die was not my first brush with cancer. I was originally diagnosed in 1998. I was a pretty typical 15-year-old sophomore in high school at St. Joseph's Academy. I was the starting three-point shooter on the JV basketball team. I spent time flirting with boys and hanging out at the mall, and everything was normal until it wasn't. That fall, during field hockey season, my entire back began throbbing. I went to the pediatrician who reassured us it was caused by a heavy backpack. Months passed, field hockey season turned into basketball season, and life felt pretty normal, despite back pain that got worked each day. On December 4th, I woke up early for the 6 a.m. basketball practice. That day, something felt different. My legs had the sensation of feeling asleep, only they would not wake up. My chest was losing feeling too. When we had trouble getting into a doctor's office quickly, a neurologist called us back personally and told us to come in for a visit, even though he wasn't seeing patients. After some tests and an MRI, my mother and I went back to his office to talk with him. Right away, he cut to the chase. He said, let's sit down and talk. He showed us the scans and told us he'd already lined up emergency surgery with a neurosurgeon. My mother cried while I thought, well, I'll just accept whatever needs to be done and do it to get better. But my optimistic thoughts lacked any reference as to what treatment would entail. After all, I was just 15 and worried about missing my basketball tournament that night. As it turns out, an egg-sized tumor was strangling the upper section of my spinal cord. My breathing was already being suppressed and shutting down my body quickly. Later, I found out I had about a 40% chance of living. That night, we met my oncologist, Dr. Bergamini, better known as Dr. Bob. From day one, he treated me like he would one of his own five children. As I lay in bed, 
hooked up to various IVs and machines, I studied this man who had both an immediate and long-term plan to save my life. That is if I survived the emergency surgery. With his relentless, caring, and knowledgeable approach, Dr. Bob became one of the first things I was grateful for in my whole cancer experience, and one of the reasons cancer is one of the best things to happen to me. Despite the very real possibility, I did not die that weekend. As with many things in life, there's a positive and a negative. The positive, after surgery, I regained all feeling in my body and did not experience any paralysis. The negative, and it's a big one, I was diagnosed with a type of sarcoma called Askin's tumor, an aggressive and rare type of cancer. Chemotherapy began immediately during that first hospital stay. For five consecutive days, a combination of drugs dripped through my IV. I was able to go home, but the hospital became a regular routine from then on. I began a rotating cycle of five-day chemo, two weeks off, and then a one-day chemo that made me just as sick as the five-day, then two weeks off again. I continued this for an entire year. I missed school during the chemo weeks, and sometimes even the next week, too. Staff from the doctor's office coordinated my schoolwork and informed teachers of what to expect. Days were filled with lying in bed and going to the doctor, and then I would have one okay week, which meant attending school in the afternoons and sometimes doing fun things. Then it was time for chemo again. Being an artist, my bald head became a challenging canvas for painting designs and smearing with glittery lotion. I even had it airbrushed with a sunset in San Diego by a t-shirt artist on the boardwalk. My thought that is if people were gonna stare anyways, might as well give them something to see. After a long year of baldness, radiation, chemotherapy, and wearing splints for extreme nerve damage in my feet from the chemo, I was gladly done. I was ready to go back to life as a high schooler. My amazing family had gotten through the year victoriously and had done every step of it together with the help of our parish and family and friends. Everyone rallied around us with prayers, meals, and other amazing assistance, and we were so grateful. So people may have assumed that my life would go back to the way it was pre-cancer, back to normal, but it was hard to adjust. I constantly struggled with feeling older than my peers, as they talked about bad hair days, I wondered if my hair would grow back at all. That summer, my family was fortunate to go on a make-a-wish trip to Hawaii and escape the memories of that previous year, if only for a little while. I joined some people from our church on a special trip to the Vatican for the beatification ceremony of Blessed William Joseph Chaminade. I was barely able to make the trip, and while in Rome, I took medicine to get through increasing pain. I prayed a lot on that trip, and I felt a deeper connection to Blessed Chaminade, the founder of the Marianist Order. I felt a peacefulness that this was someone important for me to trust for prayers of intercession. While on these trips, I started to have hip pain. As the pain intensified, my doctors decided to harvest some of my own stem cells to store in case of a relapse. While studying these cells, cancer was discovered, and we knew that my whole body was under attack again. It's very 
discouraging, but with the help of family, friends, doctors, and most importantly, God, I was not ready to give up this easily. Embracing a new chemotherapy regimen and anticipating baldness, my friend and I ran to our local Walgreens. We bought some cheap hair dye and we bleached my naturally dark brown hair. It turned into an outrageous orange fake color. And since it was so hideous, I was very glad when my hair was falling out. <laughs> For the next five months, I spent more time inpatient on the Mercy Hospital pediatric floor than out. And if I had thought that first year of chemotherapy was tough, it was nothing compared to round two. I was highly sensitive to the new drugs and endured horrendous abdominal cramping, vomiting, and explosive diarrhea. On top of all this, I frequently developed fevers and infections, which hospitalized me even longer. For some of my stays, I was admitted in the middle of the night. The hospital staff was wonderful and would have a room waiting for me so I didn't have to wait in the ER. During one of these stays, Randy, a close friend of mine, who was at the end of her courageous fight with bone cancer, somehow in the midst of my own physical struggles, for a couple of hours, I was able to sit up and ride down to her ICU room with all my IV poles. In her last hours, she gasped through her oxygen mask and forcefully told me, Rachel, I will keep fighting heaven, and you must promise you will never stop fighting for all of us on earth. I try really hard to uphold that promise to her. I missed the second half of my senior year of high school due to the hospital stays. Amazingly, with summer credits I had taken before getting sick, I somehow graduated with my class, got into some architecture programs, and kept up with my friends. In May, before graduation, a new batch of stem cells was taken from my body to prepare for a bone marrow transplant. My doctors barely allowed me to walk at graduation because three days later, I was admitted to the hospital for the transplant. I was told I had about a 10% chance of surviving. After being admitted for the transplant, I experienced some of the most intense chemotherapy drugs. As planned, they successfully killed my entire immune system and brought me as close to death as possible. Then they hand pushed a syringe of my previously frozen stem cells into an IV in hopes of growing a new, healthy immune system. From there, some of my memories are blurry. My entire body started peeling, my skin, fingernails, and even my intestines produced buckets of gunk. The chemo that was supposed to make me look tan, since it secretes through the skin, was literally burning me from the inside out. I threw up so hard it hit the wall behind my head. During that time, late one night, we actually had a special delivery. It was a noisy new bed, usually reserved for burn victims. Uh, my dad woke up, he put on a green and white umbrella hat, a Hawaiian luau shirt, and huge clown sunglasses. And we decided we were gonna have an impromptu party for this new bed, because when things get that rough, we decided there was not much else to do but try to have fun with what is before you. If all that wasn't enough, I started hallucinating, and the doctors discovered that I had two extremely serious infections throughout my body. I was transported to the intensive care unit as my body went into a septic shock. 
The doctors brought out the big guns, as they put it, some of the strongest medicines paired with my tiny new immune system. Once again, I beat all odds and pulled through. Later on, doctors told me I'm one of the sickest kids they've seen who did not die in that situation. I had to learn to walk and eat again, something I've not done in months. I slowly strengthened my skeletal figure. My spirits were hopeful for my future, even though my friends were leaving for college. I learned to truly enjoy each day and whatever came along with it. Setbacks, some small and others larger, had become part of the norm after cancer. And a year after my transplant in June of 2002 was no different. My gallbladder had to be removed. I went to a concert the next day and then discovered a severe case of shingles in my right eye the next. I also went to college orientation with an IV in my arm. Fall came soon enough and I was excited. I was starting the architecture program at the University of Kansas. I excelled in my studies and met some wonderful friends in my dorm and classes. But once again, my body was screaming at me that something was wrong. I was continually fatigued and started experiencing pain. The medicines for the pain made me feel awful, and dear friends would run across campus to turn in homework for me. Struggling to keep it all together, I made the tough decision to move back home with my parents. The day after Thanksgiving, we learned that there was a new Askins tumor between my heart, lung, and spine. There really wasn't much else to do at this point. We had exhausted our options, and my weak body had maxed out on lifetime doses of chemotherapy and radiation. Furthermore, surgery didn't seem very promising at this point. So I had a very frank conversation with my doctor, and I said, how long do you think I have? And he's really not one to dwell on statistics, but he was honest. He said he didn't know, weeks to a few months at the most, depending on which organ was invaded first. And then asked him if he had ever seen any miracles. So he told me some stories of patients whose cancers had defied the odds. I realized then that there's always hope and things to be grateful about. My plan was to live each day fully and not pursue treatments. Since there, since there really wasn't any options at that point. My prayers of intercession to Blessed Shamanad increased. My parents and some of our family friends also said specific prayers of intercession to Blessed Shamanad. And when I would pray, I would not pray for a specific, specific outcome, but I would pray for help in getting through whatever was to come, whether that meant life or death. I would also say prayers of gratitude I would always come away with a peaceful feeling that things would turn out all right, but I didn't know exactly what all right meant. I had faith that God and the guidance of prayers of intercession to Blessed Shamanad would help me through my journey, whatever it consisted of. It reminds me of a quote that my husband likes. Prayer is not asking. Prayer is putting oneself in the hands of God at his disposition and listening to his voice in the depths of our heart. After I was unable to play sports anymore, art, writing, speaking and traveling became my main focuses as a will of survival and the will to live. My goal was to continually have something to look forward to so I could at least strive to stay alive for that. A lot of my friends continued to stick by me, 
but there were others who distanced themselves. I became aware of people that were unhealthy in my life and realized that if my time was limited, I would try to surround myself with people that blessed my life. Weekly art therapy sessions with an art therapist became a lifeline for me to process the difficult emotions that I struggled to express in other ways. Through art, I explored life and death and distracted my mind from the intense physical pain I was feeling. Three months passed, and I appeared all right. I even jokingly named my tumor Spanky. I came out of this cloud of shock that I had been living under and told myself, well, I guess I'm not dying today after all. I proceeded to apply, and I got a job at an art materials store. I started saving a little bit and just really was trying to live my life. I began having some trouble breathing and was given a few light radiation treatments to help, but not really as a treatment that was going to make me better. In the fall, a whole year having passed with the tumor astoundingly, I was still very much alive but experiencing more pain. To help, I got three light doses of the easiest chemo I've ever had. Once again, it was more of a symptom relief treatment rather than trying to cure me. In December, doctors decided to do a scan, and they were really surprised because it showed that there was little to no cancer activity in the tumor area. They didn't believe the results, so they repeated them in January and had the same conclusion. And during this entire time, my doctors had scoured the globe for options from clinical trials to radical surgeries and new types of radiation. Seeing many of the expert doctors and researchers were not willing to help or really didn't feel like they could. A lot of them told my doctors to put me on hospice or trying to remove the tumor would surely kill me, so what was the point? In any case, they believed I had no chance of getting better. We just kept praying that someone would come and help. So by May of 2004, our prayers were answered when an amazing surgeon relocated to St. Louis. He studied my case and believed the tumor was stable enough to remove. I was hesitant about why did he want to do the surgery when so many others had not. But after we met with him, he answered all my questions before I even asked them. And I felt he was really the person for the job. Surgery went as smoothly as it could, even avoiding being put on special machines as many doctors said would be necessary. Ribs were cut and stretched. Muscles were cut and put back together, fiber by fiber, and the tumor was removed. It had grown to capacity and sat snugly against my fragile organs, but somehow had not invaded or damaged them. The tumor's biopsy results showed the tumor had completely died inside me despite very little treatment. It is an unexplainable medical miracle that I attribute to prayers of intercession to Blessed Shamanad and God's miraculous healing. I cannot express enough how eternally grateful I am for this special gift. It has been 13 and a half years since that surgery, and as far as we know, I am the only known case to survive a relapse of Atkins tumor following a stem cell transplant. The medical community is baffled by my case and cannot explain why I'm still here. Since that surgery, there has been no sign of cancer. For 10 years after that, I was grateful for a life that was somewhat carefree as far as health things were concerned, or at least manageable enough that I could participate in everyday life for the most part. 
I was able to meet my now husband, Gabe, and get married, get degrees in interior design, art and psychology, and a master's in counseling and art therapy. I did a bunch of traveling and speaking around the country and some abroad. Then the uh, past few years, my health and my life were challenged again and again, and I've been blessed with what I see as more miracles and defying modern medicine. A cough that I've had for over a year during my last year of graduate school turned into a diagnosis of a very serious lung infection three summers ago. The beginning of the treatment was rough but manageable, and then things took a turn for the worse when I started to cough up blood. It was determined that my right lung would need to be completely removed. The surgeon that had removed my tumor 10 years before re-entered my life and once again helped save it. During a grueling 12-hour surgery, my right lung was completely removed and there were many complications, including damage to the sac around my heart and some ribs and muscles were moved around. I appeared to be recovering well until seven weeks later when I developed a challenging and often fatal complication something called a bronchopleural fistula, essentially a massive infection that eroded tissue in my chest, causing a hole in my airway. I was in the hospital for two weeks and had surgery to construct an open cavity in the side of my chest by taking out some parts of ribs. For six months, I lived with an open hole in the side of my chest and had to go to the doctor every day for a procedure. I could not shower without help. I could not swim or fly in an airplane. I could not even travel far by car since I was tethered to my doctor and medical staff here in St. Louis. Staff at my surgeon's office took special care of me and went out of their way to make the experience as best as it could be. That June, I had another complex surgery to close up that open cavity in my chest. Two surgeons cut and moved various tissues and muscles around in my chest to fill the area where my lung used to be. Three months after that surgery, while on a trip out of town, I became very ill and was diagnosed with another bronchopleural fistula. And this time there was not a plan. We had already tried most of the options. The initial infection started to clear on its own, but it was highly unlikely, or it was highly likely that I would develop another infection because of the hole in my airway, which was exposing me to anything that might go down my throat. My doctors consulted with other top doctors around the country, and there seemed to be very few options, with one of them even being described as devastating and debilitating. I was grateful to live over a year with very few complications, and then last year, right after Christmas, I came down with a serious bacterial infection in my chest. The infection was not responding to medicines and things were not looking good again. We continued to consult with doctors and didn't have a lot of options. And then a blessed meeting with a renowned local surgeon turned into hope and gratitude. This summer, about five months ago, I had another 10-hour surgery that included breaking my sternum, repairing the hole in my airway, and transplanting a muscle from my thigh into my chest and reattaching to a new artery. I feel so much gratitude to be where I am today 
Because most days I feel really good now, and I'm able to work part-time and exercise and travel. Another part of my story that is interesting, especially to Catholics, is that when the Marianist community realized that I had experiences with my health that were hard to explain medically, and engaged in prayers of intercession to Blessed Shamanad, they started to investigate. Over the past 13 years, I have met with many Marianist priests and brothers from around the world. My doctor has been actively involved in providing my medical records for the investigation, including over 1,500 pages of medical documents. After five years of no sign of cancer, the investigation picked up even more. In May of 2010, the St. Louis Archdiocese put together a local tribunal. My parents, some of our family and friends, some from our church, and myself had to testify before this tribunal about our prayers to Blessed Shamanad. And that summer, there was a prayer service at Our Lady of the Pillar to celebrate the closing of the St. Louis portion of the case. From there, the documents, many thousands of pages, were sent to Rome for the Congregation for the Causes of Saints to review. I had heard that it had passed many preliminary stages, but two years ago, we learned that the case has been paused for now. I continue to pray for God's will and for the canonization of Father Shamanad, whether it's through my case or someone else's. When I think back over what has happened in my life, I feel overwhelmed and grateful. I see that since I was very young, I was surrounded by Marianists. They've truly shaped and inspired me. I learned different lessons from each brother and priest I have met as they carry on the legacy of Blessed Shamanad's mission. A few years ago, I was invited on a special trip to trace Blessed Shamanad's life, and I couldn't have been more excited. It felt like a missing piece to my story and connected me even more to Father Shamanad who has been so incredibly influential in my life. When I hear about his life, I can't help but notice all the seemingly endless obstacles and times that he could have given up to. I also feel like there are so many times that I also could have. He truly inspired me to not give up hope and can be an inspiration for us all. Upon seeing his gravesite in France, I was overcome with memories of everything that I've gone through flashes of traumatic hospital stays, people praying with me, late nights when I was in a lot of pain, crying out for help. I prayed there and I felt so grateful, blessed, and much bigger than just myself. I tried to do my best with these miracles of extra time that God graced upon me. Because of everything that has happened throughout my life, I've learned that gratitude is something that no matter how bad my day is, there's always something to thank God for. I choose to focus on what I do have and try not to think about what I do not have. Certainly not always easy, but something I encourage those around me to help me with. For example, when I was in the hospital for two weeks after my lung removal, I made a gratitude box. And I had everyone that came and visited fill out a slip of paper and put something they were grateful for, a positive memory. I still look at that box occasionally to remind me of some of God's blessings. And while my path through schooling and such has been a lot more drawn out than most, 
I'm grateful for the other experiences that I had during that time. And while I likely will not have biological children, I am grateful for the many godchildren, nieces, nephews, friends, kids who call me Ian, and children at work. And while I cannot work full-time at a job I love, I am grateful for the two to three days a week I do work as a part-time art therapist on the pediatric floor. Part-time allows me to rest and go to doctor's appointments, and I'm thankful for a husband that fully supports me. I may not be able to play basketball like I used to, but I can do yoga, I can go on long walks, and many other things. And most importantly, I'm grateful to be alive when so many of my friends are not because of cancer. And as strange as it might sound, cancer and illness are some of the best things that have happened to me. They remind me to stop and pray and thank God for all his blessings every day. Many of my prayers during the day involve gratitude for my life and the blessings stowed upon others. I would encourage each of you to say a few prayers of gratitude daily if you don't already, just to acknowledge the good things that you have in your life and embrace this upcoming holiday season. And I'd like to end with a quote by Pope Francis that I think really can apply to many different challenges in our lives, not just illness. Illness above all grave illness always places human existence in crisis and brings with it questions that dig deep. Our first response may at times be one of rebellion. Why has this happened to me? We can feel desperate, thinking that all is lost, that things no longer have meaning. In these situations, faith in God is on the one hand tested, yet at the same time, can reveal all of its positive resources. Not because faith makes illness, pain, or the questions that they raise disappear, but because it offers a key by which we can discover the deepest meaning of what we are experiencing. A key that helps us to see how illness can be the way to draw nearer to Jesus, who walks by our side, weighed down by the cross. And this key is given to us by Mary, our mother, who has known this way firsthand.